You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Hello, and welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm Mark Brisley, Head of Dynamic Funds, and today I'll be joined by Noah Blockstein to get his take on the current market environment and his outlook for the portfolios he manages. Noah is responsible for the management of over $7 billion in US and global growth portfolios and has been with Dynamic since 1997, where he has established himself as a successful US and global growth fund manager with a reputation that's strengthened by a 25 year plus track record of success and numerous industry awards. Alongside his mutual funds, Noah manages two hedge funds, the Dynamic Alpha Performance Fund, a conservatively managed hedge fund designed to protect capital wealth, and the Dynamic Global Growth Opportunities Fund. He also manages the Dynamic Alpha Performance 2 Fund, which is a liquid alternative fund version of the Dynamic Alpha Performance Fund. Throughout his career, Noah has regularly appeared in many well-known publications, including Barron's and the Wall Street Journal, and is a regularly featured guest on CNBC and other respected financial news programs. He brings unparalleled market insight and skill to the job, backed by a disciplined investment method. Noah, it's a pleasure to have you join us today, and I want to thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the question around the fact that you've been managing money for 25 years. How does this market environment compare to anything you've seen in the past? Well, I've certainly uh, been through a lot. We launched the Power American Growth Fund, my uh, U.S. Uh, flagship fund in 1998. Uh, so we ran that through the 2000 to 2002 bear market, uh, as well as the global financial crisis. Um, we launched the Power Global Growth Fund in 2001. Uh, but my career starts in the early 1990s and uh, right around the time of the Mexican peso crisis and followed up by uh, the Russian debt default and long-term capital as well. So uh, we've certainly seen bear markets that have been worse than what occurred in March. Um, having said that, though, I've never seen anything that's been as fast as what occurred in March. Um, the S&P 500 declined five times faster than normal. Over the last 20 years, the typical bear market has taken roughly 176 days to decline about 27%. Uh, this time it took the market 33 days to fall 35%. Usually on the rally back, about a 50% retracement, it takes roughly 74 days for that first bounce off the bottom. Uh, this time the 50% retracement occurred in only 14 days. So while I've seen bear markets that have certainly been worse than this in terms of percent declines, I've never seen a bear market that's been as fast uh, as the one we just went through. And we've seen an unprecedented amount of stimulus uh, being put into the system as corrective measures. What are your thoughts on what central banks and policymakers have done and whether or not that's actually going to contribute to lengthening or shortening the next economic cycle? We've gone into a pretty um, uh, bad recession here. But typically during the course of my career, what we've seen has been um, the economy, things are going well in the economy, uh, there are pockets of perhaps overinvestment or pockets of, uh, of, of, of heat in the economy, and the central bank is on a path to raising rates. The typical pattern of bear markets over the last 25 to 30 years has been the central banks continue to raise interest rates until something breaks, um, 
the markets usually collapse and then the easing process begins. Usually the, the, the stuff that gets hit the hardest uh, during that bear market is the parts of the market where the largest excesses were. So think residential real estate, uh, which sort of topped in 2005 and led to the calamity of 2008. You can think about sort of uh, IT fiber optic investment in the first stage of the dot coms in 1999. Um, you can go back to the SNL crisis in the early 1990s or emerging markets. And so the areas of excess um, and overinvestment uh, tend to get hit the hardest um, during those bear markets. Uh, this, on the other hand, was different. There were no big signs in the economy of overinvestment, there were no large signs, there are no signs in the economy. Uh, of, of, of problems with the overall economy. Employment was, was fairly full and we were muddling on um, this two to three percent type of GDP growth. Uh, then obviously the pandemic and the virus hit um, and the government shutdown is what caused uh, all of these economic problems within a very short period of time. Uh, so to the extent that um, this has been different, it has been very different because you know we've never seen uh, the government basically uh, stop the economy uh, on a whole, and there are no one really around who was managing money uh, during the Spanish flu for the last pandemic. So uh, very different in a number of ways, but the goals of the Fed stimulus was really to um, provide proper functioning to the markets and liquidity, and they've really done so. I mean, the, the balance sheet expansion, not just in the United States, but globally has been tremendous. Uh, similarly, fiscal policy has been tremendous as well. Um, whether that's the payroll protection plan, whether it's other programs, uh, whether it's topping up unemployment insurance uh, and other things like that. So you've had a tremendous amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus injected into the economy um, during this period of shutting down. And now we're at a point where um, the economies are beginning to, uh, to, to reopen. And so how we come back from this and, and how long that stimulus lasts um, depends on a number of things. Obviously, government's willingness to do so in what is a politically charged environment, uh, but also it depends on the ability to reopen. Um, you know whether whether we have permission from the government to reopen, and individuals' willingness to reengage with the economy. Um, and I think people's willingness to reengage with the economy is beginning. I think there's obviously some frustration. Um, with uh, with some of these measures that are putting pressure on um, certain areas, but I do think that even with the surge in cases in the U.S. South, um, you know, we're seeing mortality rates still uh, uh, trending lower on a larger scale. So, you know, where how we come out of this and and when all that stimulus ends are are, are larger question marks, and the willingness and the ability of people to reengage uh, still remain um, unknowns. So considering uh, what we've seen occur and the corrective measures that have been taken that you just spoke about, has this had you alter or adjust your investment approach? And curious as to how do you incorporate an unprecedented macroeconomic event or even a non-economic event like a health pandemic into your investment process? Our main focus is to put um, first things first, to, to, to borrow a phrase, or first principles first. And our process throughout the period of time that we've been managing uh, really focuses on our investment discipline. And our investment discipline is to find companies that have the opportunity to be significantly larger in terms of revenues, larger in terms of earnings, um, larger just in terms of companies. Um, and as those revenues and profits continue to grow, uh, the stock price will follow over time. 
And so that's really uh, what we focus in on. And those, those first principles are what guides us. Um, we're not moving around to try and figure out what's going to work tomorrow, what's going to work next week. Um, we really stick to that discipline and process. And so, you know, whether it's a peso crisis or whether it's long-term capital or, or even during the depths of the 2000, the depths of September 11th and into 2002, continuing to focus in on our process, which sort of led to success. And that's really, really important because we know over time, not only in 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 this decade and the previous decade, um, it's that it's finding companies that have the ability to be significantly larger that's driven performance. But that's true whether you go back to the '80s or to the '70s or the '60s. Um, uh, there's a select group of high growth companies out there uh, that we want to find that can compound um, their revenue and earnings and. Um, and the stock price tends to follow that. So we really try and stick to that discipline and process. Um, you know, if if we knew what we were missing, obviously we wouldn't miss it. And I think while people saw this pandemic, uh, they didn't foresee uh, obviously the size and, and the scope and the reaction to this pandemic. So you know, at parts of this, you have to figure how much is uh, how much is the pandemic and how much is the reaction to the pandemic in terms of the overall market. Uh, but our real focus is first principles and what we've seen in our funds. You know, in, in certain areas that we've been focused in on, take technology, for example, um, this digital transformation of enterprises, this move toward the cloud, uh, this move toward uh, remote access uh, of corporate and uh, re-architecture of corporate uh, IT is something we've been on probably for the last, at least last decade, um, from the early days of, of Salesforce.com to the IPO of ServiceNow and other companies like that. Um, so our, our focus really has been on this digital transformation of enterprises. What the pandemic did was it paused what was going on in the overall economy, uh, but it accelerated many of these trends. And so uh, these were trends in place before the pandemic. And what I think the pandemic has done is actually accelerated that digital transformation. We heard Microsoft say, They've seen over two years of digital transformation in two months. And we're really seeing that uh, enterprises uh, and large corporations uh, accelerate that move to the cloud for those um, who've taken you know, business in, in, in college or in high school. Um, what the tr digital transformation has done is while a lot of corporations wanted to do a tr digital transformation, that want has now become a need uh, for enterprises for a whole host of reasons to make that digital transformation. So we didn't alter our process. We didn't alter our discipline. We stayed with the areas of secular growth. And those areas of secular growth, which still represent underinvestment by large corporations, have actually seen an acceleration throughout this. That changes a lot of things. It changes the addressable market. It changes the speed to which this digital transformation occurs. Um, and, and many of those names have done, uh, have done very well this year. Noah, we have now seen U.S. and global equity markets uh, move off the lows that we saw in March. I think the question on a lot of investors' minds is, are we entering a new bull market? Or have we just been experiencing a bear market rally? Yeah, I think that those are hard, hard questions to answer. I think that um, we we try not to get caught up in semantics uh, and, and and technicals in terms of whether it's a new bull market uh, or 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 a new bear market. Obviously, uh, we were in a bull market before this, um, and um, we had this pandemic and shutdown. I think there's a number of papers written, one from the St. Louis Fed which kind of walked through the model uh, that the pandemic was much more like 
uh, a hurricane. And I believe their example was Katrina. When Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, it talked about the complete uh, stop of the entire economy and people in it. And then it sort of, as the economy ramped back up, you know, economic activity turned return to where it was within the next 18 months to two years. So there are a lot of uh, economists out there who who look at what we've seen and we look at it and look at it much more like a natural disaster than they do a, a typical recession. And so um, you, you pile on that typical recession, you you just unprecedented um, central bank actions and fiscal actions to try and get us over this hump. Um, again, though, the, the the slope of the recovery and the length of the recovery and what determines uh, the overall market recovery, I guess, longer term, like we said before, is the ability of these companies to reopen and, and the willingness to reengage. And there are things that are going to be altered for a long period of time and um, on the positive side and, and on the negative side. Um, so but those things that are better and are worse. Uh, are really just accelerations of trends that were in place before the pandemic hit. You manage uh, both the U.S. and global mutual fund mandates, and I wanted to specifically ask you about your Power American Growth Fund and the Power Global uh, Growth Class. Could you walk us through how each of those are currently positioned? So in terms of uh, how we focus on building portfolios, we don't really think about portfolios um, the way perhaps other uh, investors and index funds do. Uh, we don't think about sectors and we don't think about geographies. What we're doing at the end of the day is trying to run a fairly concentrated portfolio, 20 to 25 names of the best growth opportunities, uh, obviously in the U.S. fund within the U.S. and in the global fund uh, globally. And so our main focus is to, to, to weigh our portfolio by growth, and weigh our portfolio by what we believe is the upside opportunity. And so the structure of our portfolio reflects our belief in the fundamentals of the business uh, and the ability for that company to be significantly larger. Um, you know, we run screens globally looking for companies generating uh, high teens revenue and earnings growth. Um, and the rest of our process after we find that list of companies is whittling it down to a concentrated portfolio. Um, you know, growth is not the opposite of value. What we're trying to value is the long-term growth. And uh, really, that's what we spend all of our days on in terms of how we construct the portfolios. In terms of the global portfolio, you know, this digital transformation that we're witnessing um, and has been accelerated by the pandemic uh, is not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. And whether it's the move from enterprises to cloud-based software, whether it's the move toward e-commerce, whether it's the move toward online gaming or the digital distribution of music and movies, uh, this model, this distribution model uh, is continuing uh, not just in the U.S. and globally. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen that in Asia. We've seen that in Europe. Uh, we've seen that in the United States. We've seen that in South America as well. So the pandemic was global and so is the digital transformation. And so you know, whether these are U.S.-based companies or whether they're companies in Southeast Asia or in Brazil or in other places like that, um, you know, for us, I think it's 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 um, uh, many of the secular growth trends are the same wherever they wherever they are in the world. Some areas have a much faster growth uh, than others, for sure, and some areas are further ahead than others in certain areas. 
probably uh, China is further ahead on online shopping, uh, whereas Europe is probably further ahead than anybody in terms of uh, digital payments and uh, fintech and other areas like that. And so, you know, we're, whereas the U.S. in terms of uh, in terms of the digital transformation of the healthcare sector. Um, is probably the furthest ahead of anybody. And so there are very exciting opportunities going on, and the opportunities are global in nature, not just US. One of the other funds you manage, the Dynamic Alpha Performance Fund, uh, is as you have put it, uh, got the intent to keep the wealth in wealthy. During the market sell-off from the peak on February 19th to the bottom on March 23rd, uh, we saw the S&P down about 34%, but the Alpha Performance Fund was up over two and a half. Can you touch on your alpha performance uh, fund mandate solution and how you position the fund to protect capital during that time? The Power American and Power Global funds are what we refer to as long-only mutual funds. They just they buy stocks and, and you know, hold them uh, over periods of time. Uh, the Alpha Performance Two fund um, is a long-short portfolio, and it's a strategy we've been running uh, since 2002 in our uh, offering memorandum version of the Alpha Performance Fund. Um, our goal in that portfolio is to achieve low correlation, uh, low volatility, and mid to high single digit returns over time uh, through going long and short uh, securities. Um, we demonstrated in Power American and Global and Power Global Growth over the last uh, several decades that we have alpha, and our goal in the Alpha Performance Fund is to port that alpha or return over the market uh, into a strategy which can. Um, does its best uh, uh, to try and minimize the volatility of the overall markets. And so really by using the short side of the portfolio, whether that's shorting um, to reduce volatility or shorting to add value, uh, as well as using cash in the portfolio, uh, we were able to um, uh, obviously generate uh, positive returns during the steep declines in the overall markets. Um, it's an important um, vehicle uh, for investors to be taking a look at, because I do think one of the problems that we've seen since 2018 is the vulnerability of the bond market to a reduction in trading. I think you know this year in March it wasn't just stocks that got hit. I believe from the 9th of March to the 18th you had nearly a 17 percent decline in, in, in U.S. Treasuries, uh, let alone what happened in the corporate and junk bond markets. March was the worst uh, month in over 30 years for the traditional 60-40 balanced fund. So I do believe that asset allocation is changing from that old paradigm of bonds and stocks being mutually diversifying to bonds and stocks becoming more correlated during sell-offs. Um, and that may be a function of all this central bank QE uh, or the advent of ETFs and, and stock exchange traded bonds. But really, we saw this in 18 for most of the year, and we certainly saw it again. So how do you achieve that 60-40 balance fund risk profile and diversification benefits uh, now that both stocks and bonds are becoming, um, are becoming significantly more correlated over shorter periods of time? And really, we think that's where the alternatives can come in uh, as a portion of client portfolios. And so, you know, we've been doing this for a long period of time, and I think experience matters. We ran the Alpha Performance Fund during the end of the first uh, bear market in 2002. Uh, we ran it during the global financial crisis, and obviously, 
uh, all the sell-offs in between uh, then and now. Um, so experience, I think, does matter, and it's taking our process both on the long side and the short side, uh, as well as an overlay of trying to hedge out general market volatility to do our best to be able to deliver uh, clients that mid to high single digit return over time uh, with low correlation and low volatility. You've mentioned over the past little while that the pandemic pauses the present but accelerates the future. Based on that comment, what areas are you currently finding some opportunities and has the crisis created potential opportunities for you uh, where you're looking into sectors or businesses that previously you did not? You know, if you think about the consumer space, I believe there was a a wired interview with Jeff Bezos back in the late 1990s where they asked him what the future of retailing looked like and Jeff Bezos at the time had said that basically you'll be getting most of your stuff online your bulk goods and other things like that and then what you'll go to a retailer for is either very quick very fast stuff that you need so think drugstore or dollar store or for experiential some sort of experience that you want to go to so think uh, Lululemon's experience, whether you want to do a running class or a yoga class, etc. Um, so I think that that vision that he out, that he laid out nearly 21 years ago uh, for the future of retail has come to fruition. Um, I think in the in the consumer space, the interesting thing for us is the companies that have made those digital investments in their businesses have seen real acceleration in their businesses. The restaurant industry is one that has been exceptionally hard hit. And it's really one that I'm not sure can survive under the current um, social distancing rules. 50% capacity, table six feet apart. Uh, the restaurant business is a business with very low margins currently and, and needs high turnover. And I don't think most restaurants will survive these new rules. What it has laid the ground for those is for those restaurants who have invested heavily in their digital offering and ha heavily in delivery, uh, it has offered them a whole bunch of room now to take share from the traditional mom and pop restaurants who are very hard done by. So companies who have invested in, in, in delivery and digital, think of Domino's Pizza, think of Wingstock, think of Chipotle. Um, for a lot of those companies, the opportunity that they're now presented with, I mean, it's, it's unprecedented, the impact uh, on the restaurant business. You have to go back probably to Prohibition to find anything close to this when restaurants can no longer serve alcohol. I mean, that's how far uh, to find anything that's even close to this. So, uh, you know, for those um, uh, those restaurant stocks, we think that their um, growth trajectory from here is likely probably uh, to accelerate. One of the areas that we were concerned about as well was on the fintech side. You know, many of these fintech companies are new and emerging companies. Some of them are comparison shopping, but a number of them have exposure uh, to small and medium-sized businesses, and we weren't totally sure how they would make it through. And the move of payments from cars being presented in a store to online has been quite remarkable, and many of these fintech companies uh, have really begun to see an acceleration of their business. One of the larger problems in places like the United States uh, but also, in pro especially in, in emerging markets like in Brazil, has been the unbanked population. And how do you get the unbanked population um, aid, for example, in terms of unemployment benefits or payroll protection or other things that are going on? Uh, you know, about 20, it's estimated 20% of Americans don't even have a checking account. And so whether you look at apps from PayPal like Vemno or Cash from Square or other apps in emerging markets or in Europe and the government's ability to work with these technology companies, 
uh, what we've seen was like I was unsure on how the fintech space would be able to handle a recession, especially one that disproportionately hits small and medium-sized businesses. And, and what we've seen in the numbers that have been delivered uh, has been extremely impressive, uh, that they've not only weathered this storm, but they've been able uh, to thrive. And I think it was a very interesting test of the future of finance. We talk about the digital transformation of technology. We talk about the digital transformation of entertainment through music and movies. We talk about the digital transformation of retail um, and healthcare, um, but the digital transformation of finance uh, is upon us. And uh, if anything, it's likely to accelerate post-pandemic. Well, Noah, this has been a very insightful discussion, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your insights and perspectives. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this edition of On the Money with Dynamic Funds. Until next time, I'm Mark Brisley, and we'd like you to remember, in times like these, financial advice matters more than ever. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based on markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication, but 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values and reinvestment of all distributions, does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.